Welcome back to the Cyclotips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fritz, and we're back with another fantastic episode for you today. It's the week of March 29th, and we have a huge amount of racing to talk about. We've got Kent Wevelgum and Catalonia and E3 and Nasser Buhani and all sorts of interesting stuff to go into. And then, in today's Nerd Nuggets, we're d- diving into... Envy's new frames. That's right. Wheel and component brand Envy is now making bicycle frames. We're going to be getting into that in a little bit. Like I said, we got the usual crew. Abby, how are you today? Great. I've been skiing. (laughs) (sighs) We always admit when we screwed something up technically and we have to do it twice. (laughs) Uh, So that's what I'm admitting right now is we've done this intro once already. And Abby already said that, and now I have to pretend that I'm like surprised, uh, and I'm not because we already did this once, and the recording didn't work. But you also <laughs> so, follow me on the gram, and I've been documenting my ski ski ventures. I have known that you were skiing, and I'm very happy for you. Yeah, Dane, have you been skiing? Yes, I have. So much skiing over the past few days; it's been really exciting. I mean, the weather's been great for it. Uh, Dane changed. Kidding. Dane's lying. He, Dane is lying. He changed. He's lying. He changed his answer. I know for fact. Watched a I lot know of for bike fact racing. Dane hasn't skied since he was ten. Yeah, that's that. that it's not that far back, but it, it's been a few years. Uh, instead, I watched a lot of bike racing this week. It was a lot of good bike racing, which is great. There was just a lot of good sports this weekend. I was like watching. I was I watched the was it men's Gent Wevelgum and then women's Gent Wevelgum and then the F one race and there's all kinds of just good stuff over the weekend. It was a good weekend for sports. Shoddy, your hair is looking Hello. magnificent as always. I've been down the salon. <laughs> I haven't. James, that's a lovely potted plant you've got behind you. Where did you Where did you pick that up? Oh, I picked it up on Google. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was It was really inexpensive too. It was a great deal. I highly recommend it. The little backgrounds in our Google Meet are always entertaining. Let's get into the rest of the episode. But before we do, Shadi, what are we learning about Continental? Uh, we're going all uh, environmentally friendly today because Continental has some big goals when it comes to helping fight for the environment. For starters, they are committed to the Paris Climate Agreement to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050, which will come around quick enough because, well, once you get old and things creep up on you quickly, don't they? <laughs> it is all- <laughs> it's true. <laughs> The four of you do not, I'm sorry, but the four of you do not get to complain about being old in my presence. I am significantly older than all four of you. Yeah, but you don't look it, James. You've got yeah, good genes. Yeah, I thought you were like 33. Yeah, how's that saying, yo? Asians don't reason. <laughs> <laughs> we just don't want the world to end up like um, Blade Runner 2057, don't, do we? <laughs> and nor does Continental because it's all flying cars then. They want to be producing rubber still. Anyway... anyway alongside their carbon neutrality goals they have three other objectives when it comes to helping the environment one is to have emissions-free mobility another is closed resources and product cycles and finally to protect human rights and the environment at every stage of their manufacturing and production change from sourcing raw materials like their dandelion-made tyres to delivering to their customers. I have done a bit more research on that dandelion stuff. It's m- mental. 
As consumers, it's important that we know the companies we support care about climate action. Imagine we do nothing. We'd never be able to ride outside again. It would be online training platforms and riding on the trainer at home. We don't want that, people, do we? We want to get out and about. That, that sounds like um, Mad Max type of cycling. Here at Cycling Tips, we're doing what we can for the environment, so we're happy to partner with brands that feel the same way as us. So a big thank you to you, Continental, for taking steps towards a better future, and thank you for supporting this episode. All right, let's talk about bike racing. We had a ton of it in the last week. We're going to try to get through some of this quickly, and we'll dig into other more interesting bits. Let's start with Volta Catalunya, uh, a podium sweep from Ineos, three out of three at the top of the GC. How did it go down, Dane? Yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty dominant performance from the team, from Adam Yates in particular. Uh, he had a nice stage two time trial, which is it's not unheard of for Adam Yates to be good in a time trial, but he did a really nice time trial. Uh, and the time trial was not one that you would think would favor a rider like Yates, who's a really good climber. Uh, so he had a strong position after that. And then on the third stage, he climbed to a big lead in the overall, and he held on. Uh, and Garen Thomas was was right up there on that on that stage, and had to, uh, he did a nice time trial as well. And Richie Port had done an excellent time trial and a and an excellent climb as well. And so it was Yates Port Thomas from stage four on. Uh, the the uh, uh, I think it was Joao Almeida was uh, sitting third overall until the fourth stage, and then Garen Thomas bumped him out of there. So yeah, Ineos just took control of the race, and it wasn't even just the top three. They also had Rowan Dennis chasing down attacks and Richard Carapaz chasing down attacks. They had uh, really firing all cylinders this this week at Catalonia, and they ended up just dominating the competition. Uh, Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Roglic were not at the race, so the, the, maybe the two top other GC guys out there, not at the race. But you did have a pretty decent field, and the fact that it, they never really challenged any of those grenadiers, it was, uh, it was really impressive from... From the Ineos Grenadiers, I went and looked, and I could not find any instances in the last decade, and probably farther back than that, uh, of a World Tour stage race uh, having all three of, of one team on the podium. Uh, so this is this is up there in the in the history of dominance at World Tour stage races. So nice showing from them. If we've got any stats, folks out there, let us know if you uh, if you can find one. Whatever the last podium sweep at a at a stage race was it, it i don't want to go too far on a tangent here but man the, what, what comes to mind for me watching that is how is Ineos going to balance the the needs and desires of all of these riders right I mean, you've got a lot of guys who are going to want to win big races and are capable of winning big races and there's just not that many big races there's not enough big races at some point i wonder how they're going to how they're going to manage that how they're going to handle that I think the other the crazy thing is there's no Egon Bernal and no Theo Gegenhardt at this race. So That's what I mean. we had three you know podium finishers and not even the the two maybe big Grand Tour stars. I guess Richard Carpas is the other one. He was there. He wasn't even on the podium as well. So I do think though that the, the team has done a nice job of maybe rewriting the book a little bit on what you can achieve with multiple Grand Tour leaders. Uh, they've I mean they've gone into several Grand Tours in the past few years with more than one main leader and they've come out quite well. I mean, we saw Egan Bernal and, and Garen Thomas both won tours that way. Theo Gegenhardt was not the you know first option. He was not like with the bookies top 15 going into last year's Giro, I don't think. 
Uh, and they've done a really nice job of having multiple people kind of go in and, and coming out with, with big results. So maybe something that a team like Movistar can look to and say, hey, look, th- that actually works when you have really, really good riders. So I, I'm not, yeah, I, I think they've, they've done a nice job and they've shown that they can actually pull this off. Uh, so that's just going to strike fear into the hearts of the other teams, I think. I, th- I think the real way they've managed to do it is just by giving them huge paychecks and say, do this, ride like that, and we'll keep you happy with a handsome sum of money. <laughs> I think that's probably pretty accurate. Yeah, that is, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure that those discussions happen before those riders come on, right? You know, they know that they're not going to get the opportunity, maybe at the Tour de France, that they want, but they're going to get you know, paid 40% more than they would in any other team. So they're willing to accept it. Still, at some point, these are professional athletes. They, they, like, they like winning races. And I think that it's going to be a difficult thing for Ineos to continue to balance going forward, particularly as a lot of these younger riders sort of come into their own. Uh, it'll be more and more, more and more difficult. What's next on the race list here? Actually, wait, one other brief Catalonia note. Peter Sagan won a bike race. Yeah, it's been a little while, and it, he had not had a strong start to the season. He had uh, he had COVID for he he was sort of his training was derailed by by COVID. He he and his brother uh, Jurai and Eric Basque, I think, from the Bora Hansgrohe team, mm-hmm. uh, they all had to take a break from training, and so instead of racing E3 and Gent Wevelgem races that he's won before, Sagan went to Catalonia and didn't do a whole lot of the first few days, although none of the stages were very Sagan-friendly, so that's not a surprise. And then the the stage that looked like it might be a Sagan stage, he won it. And I think that he's got to be happy with that. He, he didn't really, uh, he didn't do a whole lot of celebrating. It was just sort of like a, yeah, I won a stage at a World Tour race. It's, it's cool. Uh, I think he's probably hoping that that form carries through to next weekend. That's what he's really focused on. He didn't even put his arms in the air. He was like, oh, well, back to this again. Been watching <laughs> Philippe videos. He's probably worried uh, about putting his arm. You never know. You do never know. You never know. There was another rider who won a stage that was a big, big coup for him. Uh, Esteban Chavez took a stage win and a really nice one. He he climbed really well on the two big climbing stages in this race. He was second and first on the two big climbing stages, uh, and that that win on stage four was his first win since 2019. Uh, so it was interesting to see that Adam Yates goes on to the Ineos Grenadiers wins the race handily but the uh, bike exchange rider uh, Esteban Chavez who you know stayed behind I guess you could say uh, does look to be yeah he looks to be really in, in form and that's good to see I, I think Esteban Chavez is one of the most likable riders out there so that was nice to see as well next on my list here Dane Bruges de Pana Brugge depending on which part of the world you live in we had a bunch of one days right yeah, there were three World Tour One Days this week. Uh, we had Rouge Japan, we had uh, E3, Saxo Bank Classic, and we had Gent Wevelgem. So the first one was on Wednesday for the men, uh, Rouge Japan, and we saw that Sam Bennett is good bike racing. Uh, that's what was proven, and he's proven that many times before. That was his first ever World Tour One Day victory. Uh, he's done, obviously, a lot of great things in stages of stage races, but uh, he actually held on in a you know long and challenging World Tour One Day. It's it wasn't it's not the hardest World Tour One Day. That's that's for sure. Uh, but he did hold on through through some classics terrain and managed to be there for the sprint at the end, where he beat Jasper Philipson and Pascal Ackerman. And once again, we saw the strong lead out from Dakuna Quickstep. Uh, Michael Morcow led Bennett in. Philipson tried to come around there, and like he got a little bit ahead of Bennett for a moment, and then Bennett decided to sprint, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't happening for for poor Philipson, who I like. Uh, but yeah, Bennett just just took the win and and uh, 
man, I, at this point, it doesn't, there doesn't really seem to be anybody challenging him and his Dakota Quickstep teammates at the top of the sort of sprinting food chain. So good for him. That could change once we get into the Grand Tours, but we will see. Another, uh, Bennett had kind of a rougher day at Gent Wevelgen. We're going to get to that in a second, but he, he got a little pukey off the back there. Uh, there was, so he, was, he was rotating in the pace line and uh, was going a little bit too hard, apparently, and had a little, little upchuck off the side of his bicycle. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> I don't know if I have. I don't I, think I've ever. I definitely have. And I just, I had beet juice before the race. And so it was oh. all bad. <laughs> and, and I like finished the race and I had a white jersey on and it just looked like blood everywhere. It was pretty oh. gross. Oh. Sorry for that visual, humans. I've had the, uh, I've had the blood taste in my mouth before, but not, I've never puked during a race. Yeah. I don't have the uh, mental fortitude to push myself that hard. You don't go hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Like, oh, this hurts. I think I'll slow down. That's that's more my MO. What happened in the women's race, Dane? Abby, did you do the report for this one? Yes. What happened in the women's race, Abby? <laughs> um, it was a pretty awesome race, actually. Um, it was it was relatively chill in the beginning. There was a couple breaks, a couple crosswinds with about 77k to go. They hit the Dumudin and there was a bunch of crosswinds, and then they did another lap around Depana, so they knew that it was coming. And when they hit that Dumudin for the second time, the race just completely exploded. There were riders crashing into the ditch on the left. There was splits everywhere. It was just complete chaos. There was a group that went off the front that had basically all the top sprinters in the game right now. And most of them had a teammate with them. Lotto Kopecky actually missed it and did this like incredible solo move to bridge to it. Just shows how strong she is at the moment. They were working really, really well together, especially the fact that they had dropped Lorena Weebus. Uh, she was back with Ale BTC Ljubljana. They missed the break, the two of them, the two teams. So they were chasing pretty hard, but they were really not able to come close to the break that was off the front with the amount of sprinters in there that had teammates with them. With 10K to go, like 10 on the dot, Grace Brown attacked. And it was really this wild moment because when you were watching that break work together and all the powerful, powerful sprinters in there, you knew, okay, if Grace Brown wants to win this race, she has to make a move. There's no way that she's going to be able to contend with all of these sprinters. She's not really a sprinter. She's a really good time trialist. And at exactly 10K on the dot, she attacked and just kind of soloed away. Everyone hesitated at first and were looking at each other. And I think that that was really the moment she won the race because for the rest of the 10K, she was going basically the same speed as the rest of the group. They weren't closing down on her, but it was that 10 seconds in between her going and the rest of the that group responding that she had at the finish. She ended up winning by seven seconds ahead of Emma Norsgaard, who gets her third second place in Belgium in 2021, and Jolene Dehor of SD Works. Love a good one day. It was a really, really exciting final 25K. Grace Brown's been second second at uh, both Aussie National Championships. She was second at uh, Nokro Corsa. And then won the race. I mean, she's had, and you know, last year, going into the sort of the end of last year, she was second at Liège and, and then won Brabantse Pale. It's been a really strong run for her. Does not seem to have 
kind of lost anything over the over the offseason, kind of came came back in really good form. And yeah, I mean, that the bike exchange team has to be really happy with the way that she's been riding, particularly having lost, I mean, Annemiek van Leuten, they, they, you know, they need new riders to step it up and they certainly have had that. So they've got to be happy with that. Yeah, no doubt. And she also, she got into the sport kind of late compared to the women who she's up against. She's really come into her own last year when everyone knew that Voss was, or that Van Vluten was leaving Green Edge, whatever they were called last year, I don't remember. Um, when everyone knew, that was kind of when she started really coming onto the scene and making a splash. And it's really great to see it translate over. But I think that that's something that We've really seen from a lot of the riders in the Peloton. I mean, look at Lota Kopecky. She had an incredible end of the season last year, and she's come into this season just as strong as before. So that is something that's really interesting about the turnaround from last season to this season, is that it seems that there's some riders that have just held on to that form through the winter because it was such a short turnaround compared to other seasons, um, especially when it comes to the classics. And then I guess some riders have not really responded to that really short turnaround as well. Next on the list, E3 Heidelbecka, E3 Saxobank, whatever they call E3 it now. E3 Saxobank Classic. E3 Saxobank yeah. Classic, right. It'll, it'll be yeah. E3 Heidelbecka in my head forever. It'll be something. So. They'll change it again soon, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's E3. What happened? It was a heck of a race. Uh, to cut a quick step, I feel like on uh, Wednesday when we saw Bruce Depano, we saw Bennett, and, and the great sprinting side of Dakuna Quickstep. And then on Friday, we saw the tactical masterclass of Dakuna Quickstep, where it, it's a race where, generally speaking, you have a lot of aggression. There, are, There is all of these these climbs that we tend to see throughout the Tour of Flanders. They put them in E3 as well. It's usually it's usually a really good race. And that was, again, the case this year. Casper uh, Asgreen kind of went off the front with, like, 70K to go. He was way out there. Um, and there was a group of strong riders chasing behind him, and they caught him eventually. And there were only I don't know, there was a handful of riders at the front of the race, and Casper Asgreen from that point on was mostly just kind of sitting at the back, like, man, I'm tired. I've been off the front for a long time. And then with only a few kilometers to go, he put in a big attack, and it was the kind of move where it was probably to, to kind of force people like Matthew Vanderpool to respond force them to do a little work to, to bring him back so that maybe your guy has a better chance in a sprint. They had, uh, the the Quick Quickstep team had both Florian Seneschal and uh, Zinek Stibar in the group. And you're thinking Seneschal is probably going to go up against uh, Vanderpool. we gotta, we got to weaken Vanderpool a little bit. Let's make him try to chase down attacks. And so they did. They fired Asgreen off the front, and nobody brought him back. And he went on and won the race. So he put in uh, two big attacks throughout the day. One of them was a long-time solo off the front, and then he kind of gained a little... He got back a little bit of energy went off again and nobody caught him and it was just a, a an example of what what can happen when everything goes right for Dakota Quickstep I think everybody has memories of Ian Stannard uh, going 1v3 against Dakota Quickstep and winning and how bad they looked that day and this was the opposite this is them doing everything right uh, putting their their rivals you know on, under pressure for the finale and then yeah using their numbers to their advantage because they didn't have the fastest spinner in the group they needed to do something like this and they did and it worked out perfectly very impressive and as green is just was it, i think brian holm called him the motorcycle or something like that he's just so many watts for so long <laughs> it's just just wild wild how 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 strong he looked that day and 
Yeah, it was. It was actually uh, Ronan McLaughlin, our, our own Ronan, wrote a little sort of tactic story on how exactly he did that. Go look it up on cyclingtips.com. Excellent website. Great website. And great website. Uh, yeah, kind of, kind of bro- bro- breaks that down because Ronan's, as Ronan said uh, to me later on Slack, he's like, well, that's how I used to win bike races, by being the teammate of much better bike racers. <laughs> not to say Casper Green is not an amazing bike racer, but... Certainly having a bunch of other teammates around is what won him that bike race. So as you said, that's how I used to win bike races too. (laughs) That's how, yeah, yeah. You know, just a tactical masterclass from James. That's what we used to get on a regular basis. (laughs) I do want to get to Buhani in just a moment, but before we do, Gant Wevelgum, what happened? Yeah, last, last races outside of, well, last big races uh, before we get to that. The men's Gent Welvegem was a very interesting race with an, a very expected winner. If you just saw who won Gent Welvegem, you'd be like, oh, that's played out pretty much exactly how I would have expected. Wapenaert won Gent Welvegem. So spoiler alert. Sorry, I've, I've, I've spoiled the outcome already. But it was a really <laughs> unusual way for Wapenaert to win Gent Welvegem. He won it in a sprint. So it was Van Aert ahead of Nizzolo and Matteo Trentin. So that alone would not be surprising for a race that tends to favor the sprinters. But it was a seven rider sprint after they'd been off the front for like 175k or something i mean there was a there was an echelon moment early on in the race in which a a group of 20 something riders got away and many of the riders in that group were sprinters which is really unusual it's really unusual to see in the front echelon it was not a lot of those classic superstars other than Wat van art but he's also a sprinter and And then they just they stayed and and then everything yeah and 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 a time time trial champion yeah. yeah But this group of 20-something riders, they, they, would, they lost several riders over the course of the day. They got you know, dropped off the back. But that, the group just stayed out front, and, and they never had a big gap. There were chasers behind them within one or two minutes for most of the day. They never closed them down. So this group that got off the front with 175K to go, I don't know if you call it a breakaway. I don't know what you'd call it. It was, it was a breakaway. Uh, they went all the way, and Sam Bennett was in that group. And so there was a moment where there were quite a few really strong sprinters. Michael Matthews, Sam Bennett, Etzolo. And obviously, Wafan Art. Um, and it was like, well, is this going to come down to a sprint? Is Sam Bennett going to you know, just destroy all these guys? Because he seems like the fastest sprinter. Maybe Wafan Art was going to give him a challenge. Unfortunately, though, Bennett being off the front in this small group, taking pulls, you know, being, being in the pure sprinter that he is, I don't think was really that well equipped to be in this smaller group for that long. And eventually, he started to look a little not great. Uh, yeah, a little... A little green, a little pale, a little peaked, and uh, and he puked, puked on the bike. Well, n- not on the bike, but he was on the bike, and he puked over to the side. I bet uh, some got on the bike. Probably, yeah. It was like with 30k to go, and he still managed to stick with the group for another like 15 minutes or something like that. Which is, I mean, Wafan Art is like driving the pace in the group, and you just puked, and you're still able to keep up. That's pretty impressive. So he had, on the one hand, he had a really impressive day. This is Sam Bennett. This is not a, a rider you tend to picture, you know, up there in the big classics like this. So really strong day from Sam Bennett, and yet rough day for Sam Bennett. Uh, he, he did eventually get dropped. And so it ended up being just a sprint among seven riders, won by Lot Van Aert. Poor Sam. I'm hoping Sam's going to be like the new Greipel, where we see him getting in classic moves every, every cobbled season. Like You don't expect him to be there, and then all of a sudden, you're, oh, look, it's Sam, <laughs> like we used to do with Greipel. He's leading up the Koppenberg. Yes. Greipel would always go on these, he would take these attacks that would never go, he knew they weren't going to go anywhere. But, you know, they might help his teammates. And they look great because it's Greipel. And you're like, hey, that's funny. 
<laughs> I would love crossed. that. Yeah, attack at 150k to go in Flanders or something like that. It'd be, be superb. Attack up the mirror. We we did forget to mention that Bora uh, could not race E3, E3 because of a positive within the team, and they all had to quarantine. And then Trek couldn't race Gent-Wevelgem because of a p- positive within the team, and they also have to quarantine. But Bora couldn't race either because of the positive that they'd had for E3. So that's kind of an interesting thing, because I think now the guys on Trek who were all in contact with the one who tested positive have to quarantine for a week, which is a really unfortunate development in terms of Flanders for Mess Peterson and Jasper Stoyven, who's riding so well. Yeah. I mean, they have to quarantine and uh, if they don't return a negative test just ahead of the race and they can't race, uh, we, we basically the medical doctor has quite a bit of leeway in making those decisions that for each race, I should say the medical doctor for each race. And that's what ended up happening at, uh, I believe it was E3 with Bora, where where the medical doctor said, "Nope, you guys can't come here." So, it, it's still possible that Trek could could miss Flanders uh, as a, as a team. Uh, I'm not sure how likely that is. I think a lot of it depends on whether anybody else tests positive this week, but it is possible. So, yeah, these you know these new variants, right? They're, they're supposed to be super uh, contagious, and the bubbles in cycling are definitely not as firm as they are in other sports and so i don't think it's too surprising that we're seeing the occasional positive test here even if even if they do race it's going to be a challenge i think for for riders like peterson and stoyven having not had the build-up that they were planning for which is a huge bummer for them because they had been riding so well i don't i mean i don't know that that means they're not going to contend or anything but i i think if if you're going into flanders with this plan of doing one thing and then you do something completely different that's that's tough it's tough to overcome when you already have to overcome Wout van arten matthew vanderpool on the road yeah agreed what happened in the women's race abby it was pretty quiet for a lot of the beginning of the race until there was a section about, I don't know, 25K to go. It started getting really interesting. Anna Henderson, who is a personal favorite of mine, ex-ski racer. So watching her go downhills is just a beautiful thing. Um, she was off the front solo and uh, there there was a lot of action behind her. There was groups merging together and kind of a lot of chaos and they took this turn into a windy section and Trek Segafredo got on the front with Ruth Winder, Ellen Van Dyke, Lizzie Dignan, and Elisa Longo Borghini and just up the pace so much that they brought back the 26 second gap to Henderson in like two seconds and completely obliterated the rest of the peloton. It was a group of seven off the front with four Trek Segafredo riders. It was pretty insane. And then it looked like Elisa Longo Borghini was just going a little bit. She was a little too enthusiastic and just rode off the front with Soraya Paladin of Live Cycling, Live Racing. And so the two of them were off the front and you couldn't quite tell if that was what they had planned or if Eliza just got caught up in the moment and went. Then the group behind, obviously Trek couldn't work that breakaway of now six. They got brought back pretty quickly by the chasing group with Canyon Stram and Sarah Tizit WNT chasing pretty hard. I mean, it was just like this slow dying death of a breakaway of two into the finish. Actually, if there hadn't been a fire at the original finish and it had been, it had ended two kilometers earlier, they maybe would have had a chance, but with an additional two kilometers, they got brought back really close to the finish and it ended up being a sprint won by Mariana Voss, who takes her first win of 2021, but more importantly, 
the first win for Yumbo Visma, the women's team. So very exciting. Another second place for Lada Kopecky, which I think she was not too stoked about. Uh, she's ready to win some stuff. And Lisa Brenauer was third. Bit, yeah, a bit of a bit of a tactical mess up, I would say, from Trek. Um, they basically tried similar things to some of their recent successes, but this course wasn't really hard enough for Elisa to to go solo uh, or even as a duo uh, as previously. So, eh, I mean, they tried, right? Like they didn't really have a top notch sprinters. So they kind of didn't have any other option, but it was still felt like a bit of a bit of a mess up there they had um chloe hosking actually like in the peloton but she did go down at one point and then was struggling to kind of hang on to the back unfortunately yeah the the tactics by eliza were very interesting because i mean it just wasted the effort of her three other teammates who drove the pace in order for them to get off the front, right? And Voss really had a perfect race. I mean, there was one point where there was a a group of favorites that went over the top of one of the climbs and Voss bridged to it on her own, which was, I think, one of the deciding moments of the race, but it was also the only time she touched the wind in the entire race other than when she sprinted to win. So it was really interesting. Super impressive. Two riders who have been racing for a really long time between Longoborghini and Voss. Longoborghini, probably the stronger of the two right now, but Voss definitely proved that she's got the brains <laughs> in yeah. this race. Well, Longoborghini no, knows she's not winning any sprints ever <laughs> in that in that group. So yeah, she had to go solo. No, no real choice. Still, like I said, bit of a mess up. Should we get into Nasser Buhani and what he got up to over the weekend? about Nasser Buhani and, well, what should happen to him after his little maneuver over the weekend. Not really a little maneuver. We called it a little maneuver on Twitter and got some flack for that. It was a big maneuver. Uh, Basically tried to take out Jake Stewart in the sprint finale at Cholet Pays de la Loire. La Loire. That's really hard for me to say, uh, my English-speaking mouth. (laughs) Many French speakers out there want to say it for us. So, to briefly tell you what happened. I'm sure you've seen this already. Uh, into the sprint finish, Buhani kind of shoved left, hit Jake Stewart, who's a neo-pro neo pro on FDG, uh, and basically pushed him into the barriers. It was a pretty aggressive maneuver. Jake Stewart had to hit the brakes, went back and finished something like 29th after you know, contesting for the sprint. And it kind of brought to mind uh, another very similar incident at the Tour of Poland involving... Dylan Gronewagen. So now we have this situation where Buhani was disqualified from the race, but as of yet has not received any additional ban or suspension, though the the UCI has sent it over to their disciplinary commission, so that could change. We have this, yeah, we have this fundamental issue here where sprinters don't really know when they're going to be penalized. They don't really know how much they're going to be penalized. And as a result, we have riders like Buhani, who has done this over and over and over again. He has a bunch of incidents uh, back on his resume, including uh, a violent incident with his own director, a time that he had to be separated from Ruby Barbier at, uh, I think it was Perry Bourges. We have a sprinter who has done this over and over and over again, and an incident that is similar to ones that happen in sprints on a regular basis, but are fundamentally very, very dangerous. 
And what do we do about this? So, open this up to my esteemed colleagues here. What do we do about Nasser Bouhani? Let's take him on the back of the bike sheds and show him the errors of, errors of his way. I think <laughs> that if it was a fist fight between you and Bouhani, Shadi, that you perhaps don't have the upper hand. Hey, here. <laughs> I've watched lots of um, Kung Fu Huey. What, what was his name? That cartoon. Kung Fu Huey, number one super guy. Kung Fu Panda? No, that's not the one. Anyway, yeah, he would beat me. <laughs> I think no. I'm serious here. I think you got to give him some kind of suspension. But I think the UCI put them. They dug themselves into a hole by giving Dylan Grunewagen such a long suspension, which I think most of us were not. We weren't thrilled with the length of Dylan Grunewagen's suspension because of all the other factors involved in that, and just because that kind of thing that Dylan Grunewagen does or did does happen sometimes. Uh, so they gave Grunewagen this long suspension, I think, to send a message, and also because it was kind of towards the end of the season, so they had to suspend him for a while to make it count. Uh, into the next season. And then because of that, now everybody's frustrated because they say, well, Dylan Grunewagen got this big suspension and Nasser Bahani should get something. And he should, but they, they, they have dug themselves into this hole because now if, if they're going to be consistent, they have to give him a really lengthy suspension. And it's hard to say where consistency should start when the first thing they did was probably a mistake. Uh, so I think they gave him, I think they should give Nasser Bahani some kind of penalty beyond just disqualifying him. And then... They should codify exactly how they're going to deal with these things in the future so that they don't have as many questions around the vagueness of their response. The The problem that we all kind of had with the Dylan Grunewagen suspension from the beginning was that they were suspending him based on what happened, his actions, his decision to push uh, Fabio Jakobsen into the barriers, but also what happened afterwards which wasn't necessarily Grunewagen's fault that the barriers exploded. That was the Tour of Poland. And we've spoken many times about how the Tour of Poland didn't receive any kind of uh, penalization or anything. And that I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I don't agree with that. I think when it comes to Buhani, if you test positive for drugs twice, you get a ban for the first one and a longer ban for the second one. So I think in the situation of Buhani and riders who have had offenses like this repeated times, they should have some kind of, you know, stamp card that is like, okay, the first time you get, so you get like pushed to the back of your group. The second time you get disqualified. The third time you get suspended for a week. And then for the fourth time you get a six month ban, maybe not six months, but I mean, at this point, disqualifying him from a, what, 1.1 in France is not going to teach him a lesson. He does not care, <laughs> especially given that he's done this many times before. I think and especially... And he didn't win anyway. Yeah, and, and them disqualifying Grunewagen for nine months, that only really sends a mes message to Grunewagen. Other sprinters aren't going to look at that and be like, oh, well, I'm never going to push anyone into the barriers again. That's not really sending a message to the peloton that's going to get through in any way. But the UCI has been so vocal about making the sport safer. And if they want to follow up on that, then they're going to have to give Buhani more of a penalization than just disqualifying him from the race. So what you say, we need a Buhani bingo card. You have, you have to start somewhere like April the 1st, we're getting all these new rules into place. We're getting... The no super tuck rule, there's the new barrier rule coming into 
place. There's the no invisible aero bar will be scrapped, all that. You're not allowed to do that. So they're doing something about safety and you have to start somewhere. And Buhani is renowned for being, I want to say bad lad, but that's a light one to say. He's renowned for being an absolute tool in the peloton when it comes to sprinting. Um, it's upset many, many people, got in many, many situations. So it's not as if you're picking on a random guy who hasn't got any form. So you got you start somewhere, slap the ban on him, show what you can and can't do. And it's not as if it's yet yeah, some random situation where it's, I don't know, say Sam Bennett, who's not really caused much trouble in the past. Yeah, sprinters all cause trouble, but Buhan is renowned for it. And if you look at this particular instance, Buhan is clearly out for Jake. That short clip you see on online, the the overhead shot, if you go from the, the full kilometre out, Buhan has clearly got got his knives out for, for, for Jake because it, there's actually a couple of couple of bumps prior to that, that major one that we see. Jake's Jake's got Jake's got the wheel of Viviani. He's also got the wheel or the possibility to take the wheel of Buhani's lead out as well. And Buhani clearly can see him as um, a, a threat in the sprint. Knows he's the major threat in his sprint. And well, yeah, tries to make him not the threat. So yeah, Buhani, start with him, show what's not right and then go from there. Yeah, I mean, Buhani, uh, he, he put out a statement saying that it was an accident, basically, that he was trying to stay in the slipstream and, and just moved over and, and hit him. I, I'm with you, Shadi. I, I, I don't see that. If you go watch the whole last kilometer, he was very aware of where Jake Stewart was, and, and that really... There's there's no way that that was an accident, basically. Uh, I think that there's two, sort of two fundamental questions here, right? One is, is the UCI going to penalize actions or consequences, or some combination of of the two. Because in the Grunewagen situation, as Abby said, they penalize consequences more than actions. In this case, we're kind of, I guess, requesting, asking that they that they start to penalize actions, because that feels to me like the only way you're actually going to get any real change. Because fact, frankly, sprinting has been chaotic and super dangerous forever. And to get sprinters to change their mindset that they're not going to, to change lines like Buhani did over the weekend... That's going to take some time. It's going to take some basically some re-education. I tell you, oh, you who else should be held accountable is his team. They need to be doing, not just the UCI, not the race, but the team need to not just put the statement out that Buhani put out, but say themselves that, yeah, this guy's done wrong. Maybe suspend him without pay for, I don't know, a few races a month, whatever. But they need to show that they're doing something about a dangerous rider in their camp. Yeah, I think that that's. I wouldn't hold my breath on that oh, one no. personally. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that that's necessarily going to going to happen. Yeah. So so the UCI, like I said, has to has to sort of balance penalizing actions versus consequences. Uh, they have to decide whether whether actions are going to be more important than what actually happens as a result. Uh, because one of the things that was the major difference between the Gro- the Grunewagen incident 
on this incident was simply that the barriers held, right? They're not the super new barriers that E3 rolled out. They're not the sort of plastic looking yellow ones that were rolled out over the last week, but they are a better barrier. They, you know, they held together, they clipped together, they didn't move. Jake Stewart was able to kind of bounce off of them and come back and stay upright, which is a really impressive bit of bike handling, by the way. Uh, but that could have been easily just as bad as the, as the Grunewagen crash. It was exactly the same action. If anything, maybe a more egregious one than the Grunewagen incident. And yet we have this, this at the moment, relatively large, very large disparity between outcomes for those two riders. And I think that those until those things can be reconciled, you're not going to have sprinters change what they do. You're not going to have them not go for the gap that they might be able to go for. You know, there are, there's some things, there's some ideas that were thrown around after the Grunewagen incident that I think are worth considering. One is using sprint lanes, kind of like on the track or on the velodrome. Uh, you know, it, uh, on the track, if you're in the sprint lane uh, at the end of a race, you basically, you can't come out of it, right? So that, so that the only way uh, to, to pass a rider is around the outside. You can't dive on the inside. You can't exit the sprint lane. You could have something kind of similar to that in road racing, with some finishes, it would need obviously some tweaking. It would take some time for sprinters to get used to, but you could set some kind of rules about where lead out riders can go, where sprinters can go. It sounds very complicated, but you know, track racers in the velodrome have, have they've figured it out. I think it's possible. Uh, you know, then there's some other simple things like, you know, the last 300 meters needs to be straight and things like that, that I think the UCI could step in and really further improve the safety of sprint finishes beyond just barriers. Uh, but the big one for me is, and back to back to Buhani, the big one for me is you just need really consistent uh, application of the rules and probably some rewriting of the rules to make sure that the sprinters know what is allowed and what is not. Because frankly, what Buhani did over the weekend happens all the time. Right, it happens. Some version of that happens in probably most sprints in terms of two riders coming together in that way. That one was a really visible, obvious one, and it was near the edge of the of the course. So the you know so Jake Stewart didn't really have anywhere to go. But it's a really common thing, and to get sprinters to stop doing that is going to take it's going to take quite a while. I mean, I think that if it was the rules were clearer and the UCI had consistent penalty for that, that that to me is step one. Because if they know that they're going to have, they're, they're going to get suspended for what, two weeks, if that happens, I mean, that's a rule that they know that if the UCI consistently puts it in place, they can't argue it. It's the same as if you test positive for doping for the first time. You can't, well, you can argue it, but I mean, usually you lose. So. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I kind of go back. It's 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 a difficult thing. It's easier for us to sit here and say this is what the UCI should do, but the reality is sprinting is super chaotic, right? And a lot of these incidents where two riders come together, they actually are accidents, right? Because you're not always fully aware of of the riders that are coming around you and what and what's happening. That said, some of them are more obvious than others. This this Buhani incident is a perfect example where you could tell that Buhani knew where Jake Stewart was. It, it, there is some nuance required, but that's why we have race juries, right? We have, in theory, a panel of experts to decide this, and I think that, yeah, they need to, they need to set a, uh, as you said, Abby, a sort of series of of consequences. Whether it's disqualification first, and then you get a little a short ban, and then you get a long ban, that's the kind of thing that might actually make a difference here. So, what do we think before we wrap up? 
how long should Buhani's suspension be? Should he be suspended? If so, for how long? Yeah, I, I give him, I don't know, a few weeks or a month. I, I, I wish that they hadn't suspended Grunewagen for so long to set that bad precedent. Maybe they could start yeah. setting a good precedent now and don't give him that long of a suspension for this first time since they've been giving out big suspensions, even though it's definitely not the first time he's done it in his career. Abby? I'm going to say a six-week ban. So that gets him through, you know, most of the spring one days. Mm-hmm. That's probably probably reasonable. Shadi, what do you I'm think? G- you, you seem you seem you seem to dislike him more than most of us. I think I I just dislike him because I met him once after Paris Nice a few years ago. Tried to get an interview with him, and he was a real gruff, miserable fella. And then I took even more <laughs> of a dislike to him because he had the most ridiculous like ruby red. Um, basketball shoes on and I was thinking oh, he was <laughs> he was trying to look like um, what's her name Dorothy the basketball version of Dorothy <laughs> after a race and I was like you can't, you can't how dare you compare Nasser Buhani to my favorite movie of all time <laughs> I am personally offended you can't judge a man by his shoes in Sean. this situation I think I can shoes. and yeah I would give probably about six weeks suspension <laughs> just for the shoes and then another Another couple for the incident with Jake. But I just think, um, going back to your the UCI implementing maybe race lanes or something like that, let's look at it this way. There is plenty of sprints all throughout the year and you only hear about a, f- a few incidents like this. And over the years, you never hear bad words about a lot of sprints. Let's take Greipel, for instance. He's never been in trouble and he's won yeah. plenty of big races. So basically, just don't be an absolute muppet while racing. <laughs> be, a, be a good guy. Race race like you're meant to race. Race like a gentleman. And well, we, we, sh- we won't have to have big, heavy rules, big, heavy um, yeah, consequences for, for actions like this. Shadi, you are asking way too yeah, much. Yeah, I know. Be nice to each other? What kind of nonsense is that? Have you looked on Twitter lately? It's a bad place. It's a bad place. <laughs> we can dream. All right, I think we've sort of dug into this enough. Uh, we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on this one, obviously, and see what happens to Bahani. The UCI has said that they are going to look into it, and we'll update you on the podcast. Let's move on. Before we go any further, this week's episode is also brought to you by Quadlock, the most secure smartphone mount that goes right on your bike. Your smartphone is the most accurate tracking device with access to apps like Strava and Komoot. that can track your rides and upload them straight to the internet. No cables or computers needed. Quadlock's dual-stage locking system allows you to mount your phone right onto your handlebars. It holds strong even over the roughest terrain, perfect for all types of cycling. Road, mountain, commuting, whatever you want to do. For more information, check out quadlock.case.net slash cycling tips. Thanks to Quadlock for sponsoring this week's episode. I think it's time for Nerd Nuggets. Nerd alert. 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 We still have the same sound effect. (laughs) Just so you guys know. (laughs) <laughs> which is probably very confusing for people who don't know that it used to be called nerd alert yep. although at this point i'm not sure well 
I guess for any new listeners out there, they may not have known that it used to be called Nerd Alert. But anyway, so be it. What is it? But we don't know what sound a nugget makes, like a like frying, like also a McDonald's. The Nerd Alert sound is so I, good. I, I I think it would probably sound like Dane Cash chewing. Yeah. Ooh, I could just record myself. I'll go get some nuggets and record myself. Yeah. That, <laughs> people people have like a upchuck reflex when they hear other people talk like eating on podcasts. So I don't know if that's a good yeah, idea. That's what Sam Bennett was listening to. That sounds like a them problem, not an us problem. <laughs> we never talk about puking ever, and now we've talked about puking, like, what, three times in this episode. Yeah, that's how we roll. Dear. James, what are we talking about today? Yeah, so Envy Composites, that brand that people know for their carbon wheels and forks and handlebars and stems and seat posts, that sort of thing, uh, they just announced late last week that they are now getting into the frame business, or I should say frames, because they announced two. Uh, one, uh, a, It's sort of weirdly described because they're calling it the one of them is the race and the other one's the all road. Um, but they're fully custom geometry and handling and fit and everything. Um, so why they have two models is kind of odd because they can be kind of anything but what's kind of interesting from a technical standpoint is the way they are doing custom geometries because normally companies that offer fully custom carbon frames they do them in tube to tube style whereas you basically start with straight tubes and then you kind of cut and miter them as you would uh, a steel or aluminum or titanium frame then they're bonded and wrapped uh, at the joints Envy is kind of molding these nine individual parts. Uh, the joints are kind of more in line with the tube. They're kind of like, you know, sort of not quite at the joint. Um, and those things are all, all overwrapped and bonded and everything as usual. But they're offering this custom geometry and fit just by virtue of how they are joining these nine pieces together. Hmm. Like, so where where exactly are they are they connecting then? If you're like, they're, they're I'm trying to picture this. Help me picture this. Sort of picture, all right, here's sort of the best way that I think I can describe it as far as how the individual pieces look. Uh, there is a very in-depth article on sodicantips.com, by the way, so you can go and look at these pieces. Um, uh, but That's what I've done. I've opened up your yes, story. And yes, now I know indeed. what you're talking so about. So it's, it's sort of like if you were to take a tree branch and sort of like break off pieces of it, a lot of times those branches don't break at like the very, very base of the branch. You kind of have like this little stub. Um, that's kind of what these little pieces look like. So like the seat tube, for example, you have a seat tube, but it's connected to uh, a bottom bracket gel, which has these little stubs off of it to which the down tube and chain stays and seat stays bond to it. Um, and that's kind of how it works. So instead of having these, like I said, mitered and bonded joints, you have these little stubs that everything kind of plugs into more like socket style. So you can then sort of adjust the angle at which a tube attaches to that stub. Basically, basically yeah. what they're doing. I mean, they, the... Yeah. Envy co-founder and kind of one of their main engineers, Kevin Nelson, he uh, he kind of devised this thing called, uh, what is he calling it? It's like the perfect fit calculator or something like that. Anyway, it's this giant, massive spreadsheet uh, Excel algorithm thing that he put together. And essentially what you do, I mean, Envy is not in the business of determining what your fit should be. Um, and they're kind of making the, assu- the assumption that if you're buying one of these things, you kind of have an idea of what you're looking for. So based on the geometry that you want, this spreadsheet essentially takes all those hard points and then calculates for Envy how all these pieces should be kind of cut and bonded and you know arranged together in the jig. Um, and then you kind of just end up with what you're supposed to want. Sort of like That's, Tinker Toys or Lego, I guess. Sounds like it really advanced Excel 
Uh, it was really expertise. big. Yeah, I had a yeah. I had a pretty in-depth <laughs> call with Envy quite a bit before this bike was launched, and uh, they gave me a peek at the back end of this thing. And yes, it was basically spreadsheet hell, which to me would be a complete nightmare because I don't like spreadsheets. It was a lot of numbers. It also sounds expensive. No, yeah. no, no. Fr- from Envy? No. no. Uh, yes. Oh, so yeah, it is. It is pretty expensive, no doubt about it. I mean, they are calling this thing. It's not a frame; it's a chassis because it's a frame fork. Uh, there's an integrated seat mask, so it comes with a seat mask topper, which of course is also molded by Envy uh, out of carbon fiber. And then there's also a fully custom one-piece uh, carbon fiber handlebar and stem that is also built to order. And all of that is included in the chassis, which costs seven thousand U.S. dollars, or you can get a rolling chassis that also includes wheels um, for, let's see, I think it's one or 2,000 more than that. And then they offer some complete builds too, which, you know, I think they top out at like 12.5 or something like that. Um, you know, but again, custom geometry, you can get custom paint. Uh, you can get like super, super duper custom paint if you want to pay more. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's expensive. But uh, when I first looked at those numbers, I was kind of like, holy crap, that is a ridiculous amount of money. But then I looked at like, what you pay for a top-end Trek or Specialized or something like that. And it's actually pretty much the same thing. So It's not too far off. Like, yeah. not really at all. Any of those bikes that are in the sort of 12,000 retail, like full retail, complete bike, is, is you're basically paying the same thing for the, for the frame set. I love... I, I really like Envy stuff. I, like, their wheels are on my, on my personal bike. Uh, I don't like that they're calling it a chassis personally it's a frame it's a frame set like we've been using the same terms for these for a very long time but why do they have to be different well i mean they're they're not they're not introducing the term necessarily like other companies have done stuff stuff like this like i think and we ignored them too well we just ignored them. i think trek (laughs) called their setup a module maybe uh and like other other companies have done stuff like that but i guess the implication is that all this stuff has to go together so it's not like you could pair this frame with another fork or another seat post or something like that. So there is a lot of like proprietary bits. Um, so yeah, I can guess I can kind of see why they're calling it a chassis, but it's it's a frame. No, I'm calling I'm no, calling it a frame them, set. All them sort of terms make me feel a bit like Sam Bennett did middle of E3. Oh wow, oh that's harsh. Not good. Harsh. What's what's the benefit of getting a bike like this versus just like a stock? frame i mean the the question of custom frames is always an interesting one because from a technological standpoint the the fact of the matter is the bikes that you get from mass manufacturers again like trek specialized whoever oftentimes they are lighter they are you know stiffer or they can be more comfortable a lot of times there's more engineering work put into the aerodynamics and stuff like that like technically speaking they are probably better bikes but the issue is if for a custom frame you know if for one, if you have certain fit requirements that you can't get fulfilled by a mass manufacturer, that's a that's an easy answer for why you go custom. Um, otherwise, like you kind of just want something a little different, or you want like you know a special paint right from the get go, or yeah, I mean that's really yeah, I mean that's it. realistically, there's there's not a whole lot of genuine any sort of need for a lot of people for a custom frame, um, and certainly not one of this cost and caliber i mean if you if you're just looking for fit requirements you can get a, a custom steel or aluminum frame for way way cheaper obviously so i mean the person but I mean, realistically speaking i mean no one's gonna be buying this envy frame because they're looking for the, the a deal 
you know, because they're looking for like, you know, a better value. That's just not what, what necessarily what you're getting here. I have a custom frame and I don't, I don't need one, but if anyone else gets on it, it they get bucked off just right off, right off the front with the, with the ejection seat. Yeah. So it's, it's set up for my, my size and weight specifically. And if anybody else gets on it, they, they can't ride it with your Abby's just staring Abby at me. <laughs> Abby, there's your answer. It's just for the cool kids here. That's why he's got one. It's just prove your point. I mean, th- there, there is definitely that cool factor. I mean, and, and, you know, if you care about this sort of thing, I mean, Envy is currently only selling this to U.S. customers right now, and the frame is made in Ogden, Utah. Um, I don't, uh, the, the cockpit, I believe, is also molded in Utah. I don't know about the fork. I mean, Envy's forks typically are made uh, in Asia. Uh, I also don't know about the seat mass topper, so those may be made overseas, those, those, those components, but uh, the frame and fork. Oh, sorry, the, the frame and the cockpit for sure are made in Utah. Other bits I'm not which means, sure about. Which means you can probably actually get one right now. <laughs> so that's fine. In theory, you <laughs> could probably get one right now. Unfortunately, you probably can't get any parts to put on it. Right. <laughs> the Suez Canal just unblocked this morning. We have exciting news. The Ever Given has uh, given. unstuck itself. Given. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is good because there actually there are bikes on there. I ran a story over the weekend. There's, there's, some, there's, a, there's a box of canyons on there. There is. There is. Uh, that is now going to finally make its way to Rotterdam. Oh, sad day. Eventually. It'll still be a while. Is Envy still owned by Armour Sports? Uh, that is a good question. I believe they are still owned by Armour Sports. Uh, I don't really know how much longer that will be the case, just you know, by virtue of the fact that you know everyone seems to be going through corporate musical chairs at the moment and all sorts of weird like consolidation efforts going on. Um, so I don't know. I, I, that's that's a good question. Um, don't know. That just seems with them still being under that umbrella and then obviously separating from Mavic, it does seem like they're kind of going back to their roots that of doing stuff like this than when they weren't when they were part of Mavic, they were kind didn't have their hands tied, but they weren't doing wild stuff like this, so it didn't seem Yeah, to be I mean it's kinda of interesting because I mean, Envy, they supposedly have been talking about making frames for a really long time. I mean, uh, Jake Pantone, the, the, my primary contact at Envy, he's been there for, I think, almost 15 years or something. And he was saying that even when he first, even when he first started there, Envy had already been talking internally about making a frame. And they have a pretty long history of making frame components for other small builders. Like, you know, they still make tubing if, if, if someone wants to make a custom carbon frame of their own. Um, so they have all this experience making frame parts. So the it really wasn't that much of a technical, technical jump for them to take their expertise in making parts and making an actual frame out of all that. So I don't know how much of a jump that really was. And then you kind of also have to wonder what Envy's wheel and component business looks like. I mean, not many people buy aftermarket forks anymore. That's basically the realm of custom builders now. Um, and then as far as wheels and stuff go, I mean, Envy's wheels are still really good, but these days, so is everyone else's. So uh, I don't know what their, I mean, their wheel business, I know just based on pandemic affected stuff is kind of going bonkers, but relatively speaking, compared to what it used to be, you know, my guess is that they don't have as big a, a market share as they once did. So from a business perspective, it might actually make sense for them to move into frames because that this is something where they're actually offer actually able to offer something a little bit different now. And they're gorgeous. They are good looking bikes. I will say that. Did you guys see the slight Photoshop kerfuffle that they had with this massive oh. rollout and all of this excitement and then 
They photoshopped the crank right onto the to the frame, and you could see like both sides of the crank. Wait, what? Yep, I missed this. So, so they they photoshopped. Yeah, as Abby said, they photoshopped a crank onto the frame, uh, but they didn't remove. They didn't like cut out the left arm, so you could just see the left arm on the right side of the bike. What? <laughs> Where was this? So imagine, you know, imagine you've got a cutout in Photoshop, a entire crank set, oh, yes. left and uh-huh. right arms. Yep. And then imagine a frame, and you just stick it on the bottom bracket area. That's what it looks like. <laughs> Cat three memes funny. caught it, but then Envy, uh, you know, in good spirits, reposted it and said, "Photoshop fail for a seven thousand dollar frame." Yeah, we've done things like this. You know, yeah, it's it it just happens. Everyone sometimes. makes There's mistakes. A lot of, yeah, everyone makes mistakes. Well, and yeah. I will say the fact the fact that Envy had to do that says a lot about the fact that you know i don't know maybe they didn't have a crank to stick on there in real life i don't think they did i don't i mean that's probably why they had to do it it's stuck in the suez canal so i can't get cranks i actually have a a, a test bike here from envy right now that i haven't ridden yet um but uh i mean things are in such short supply that envy actually had well i had to supply the the durace group set for that bike and i had to supply the uh all the di2 wires for that bike because they weren't going to be able to get any so it's a bad place out there right now. Big, scary bike industry at the moment. Indeed. I think it's time to wrap up for today. Keep an eye out for James's review of that Envy. If uh, if we can get all the necessary parts to put it together. Well, no, it's all, it's all together it. now. I just have to ride okay. it. Okay. Well, then we'll be riding it. James will be riding it. Can we'll I ride something it? something up on that. Nope. Can't ride it. James, James only. And we'll be running a review on that sometime soon. So keep an eye out for that one. Thanks, as always, for listening to today's episode. Thanks to our Velo Club members for making this podcast possible, and to Continental, and to Quadlock, all of you combining to make this podcast possible. Do me a favor. Do me a favor. Take this podcast. Share it with one of your friends. Just do it right now. Take your phone. Hit the little share button. Send it to two friends. Send Shoddy, it. I'm sending you this podcast. You should check it out. Gee, I'll send you it, Dave. Oh, sounds good. Good deal. And then we'll send it to our mums. My mother goes to sleep to this podcast, so she won't make it to this part because she turns it on and she falls asleep. So she will not make it That's to the end of the podcast. Yeah. It's quite understandable. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you to our esteemed panel today, talking through all the bike stuff. We'll be back next week. Bye, everybody. I I sit here I sit here very dutifully patient while you all talk about racing that I don't watch at all and have almost no interest in whatsoever. I'm sitting here on my hands for like the last hour listening to everyone blabbing about racing and blah 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 tactics and sprinting and blah blah blah. And then and then we get to my segment and no one's listening. What the hell? <laughs>